I am in some people's eyes othered. But I think just as a pure like personality trait, <laughs> I wouldn't say that that ever made me feel like I was actually less than them or that I was vulnerable in some way. That's just not the way that I personally am wired to approach the world. Hello and welcome to the Alien Chronicles. I'm your host, Sadia Khan. Our today's guest is Jay Chang. She is the author of The Vangs vs. The World. The book has been named a New York Times Editor's Choice, as well as Best Book of the Year by Amazon, BuzzFeed, NPR and others. Jade has appeared on national programs. She has spoken to audiences at universities and book festivals. According to NPR, and I quote, her book is unrelentingly fun, but it is also raw and profane, a story of fierce pride, fierce anger, and even fiercer love, unquote. She's also the contributing writer to The Good Immigrant USA, my favorite book. Her essay titled How to Center Your Story is the perfect ending to this great book. We'll talk to Jade about her writing and a lot more. Welcome to the show, Jade. So excited to have you. Thank you so much for having me. I'm happy to be here. So let's jump right in. Um, okay. You were born in Columbus, Ohio, but you grew up in LA. Can you tell us a little bit about your childhood? What was the culture like at home? Yeah, so I was born in Columbus. Didn't My parents were in grad school there, so I didn't really spend any time there. We moved to LA when I was still in elementary school. And I grew up in a family that where I wasn't allowed to speak English in the house. You know, I grew up speaking Mandarin Chinese. Outside of the house, I think the real difference, you know, now in retrospect, I feel really lucky about where I grew up because the San Fernando Valley was very diverse. There were a lot of different, um, a lot of different immigrant groups living there, a lot of Asians, a lot of Latinos. In my schools, I would say that White people were not the minority, but they definitely also were not the majority. And I don't think I realized kind of what a difference that made in just the way that I saw myself until I met Asian people who grew up in the middle of the United States, let's say, you know, in a town in Wisconsin that was nearly 100% white. So how was your upbringing different from those kids who grew up in a predominantly white community? Oh, yeah. I think it was really different. I mean, I think the main thing is I didn't have that experience of feeling other. You know, I didn't feel like I was conspicuous because of my appearance at all. I mean, I was aware, of course, of the fact that like that Asians are a minority in the United States, but it didn't feel like that to me on a day to day basis. I would say that white people were not, they were not in the majority in the schools that I went to. On tour for the Wangs, I got to meet a lot of, you know, there were a bunch of books by other Asian Americans that came out around the same time. And one of the, the great things about that is that you get to meet each other at book festivals and things like that. And I definitely have spoken to a lot of people who grew up in the Midwest in tiny towns where they were literally the only brown face in the town. Mm -hmm. And I feel like for them, there definitely was this 
sense of, you know, often being on the defensive, always feeling like the only representative of their race, all of those sorts of things. And I really realized how lucky I was that I hadn't, you know, that I didn't have to deal with that at all. What inspired you to be a writer? Oh, I mean, I think all writers start out as readers, right? Mm -hmm. I loved to read as a kid always and still to this day. There were always stories that I wanted to tell. And I think I, I like every aspect of telling a story. You know, I enjoy kind of creating really interesting characters. I love building a world. I love the kind of plot and story aspects of it. I love dialogue and banter, you know. Hmm. Yeah, so definitely all of that. But I also, I think, you know, when it came to the novel, when it came to the Wangs, I think that I also just felt a real desire to write a different kind of immigrant story. Mm -hmm. That was my real driving force for starting that book, for sure. So this is a fiction, right? It's, mm -hmm. it's fiction and it could have been set anywhere. It could have been set on Mars but you said it in California. Mm -hmm. Were you trying to tie in some of your own experiences in this book? I mean, yes and no, right? I think that no matter what, whenever anyone creates something, of course it comes kind of really entirely from their own experiences and interests, right? But I think that I, it wasn't so much that I wanted to kind of tell my family story because it's definitely not that. <laughs> hmm. It was more that, you know, it starts in Los Angeles and then it's actually a cross-country road trip. And hmm. there are a lot of different worlds that I wanted to explore. And I also love a road trip story. And this just kind of seemed like the best way to, to combine them. And how do you translate the concept of your cultural heritage for mainstream? And I'm talking by mainstream, I mean mainly white readers in your writing without explaining your truth or without giving explanations for who you are? Yeah. I mean, you know, I don't think of it as translating for someone else's benefit, right? I think that, mm -hmm. you know, there's a kind of truth in fiction that is the specific is the universal, that when you tell a really specific story, that when you tell a story with a lot of authentic, specific, true emotions and details, it becomes a universal story. It becomes a story that, that a lot of people can relate to. And so I very much decided not to explain anything. You know, I very much decided not to, for example, offer direct translations for some of the Mandarin that's in the book. Even though, honestly, if you read it, it's you can get the meaning through the rest of the dialogue. But yeah, I think that was a really deliberate decision on my part not to try to make myself palatable for an audience that is not me, you know? And Jade, why do you think that's important? That's a good question. But I also... It, like takes me a minute to think about it because I feel like it's just so true to me that it is important. <laughs> that I think it's been so long since I thought about the why of that. But um, I think it's important because who wants to live their life for other people? Who wants to live their life on other people's terms? I think that's just a really kind of self-defeating way to look at the world. And also trying to explain yourself all the time, right? Because yeah. I think that is an expectation. That's something that 
people expect of at least immigrants i don't mm. know if your experiences how different your experiences are from your parents experiences and i really mm. like your approach because i think it's extremely important for us to share that responsibility with others and say that you mm. know the onus of knowing people from other cultures knowing americans mm. from other cultures should lie with mm. everyone and not just those who are from a culture which may not be the mainstream culture Absolutely. And I think also, you know, people can expect anything, right? Like people can expect you to explain. That doesn't mean that you have to meet those expectations. You have a choice of what it is that you want to put out in the world. And the other thing is there are always going to be people from a culture who love to explain, you know, yeah. <laughs> who, just, who just like live to explain stuff. So they can do that. That's great. And then the people who want to know can search that out. So talking about your experiences versus your parents experiences do you, do you see any similarities or differences in terms of how they approach being american is their definition different from yours and if so in what ways and if it's similar in what ways that's like an essay man uh, <laughs> uh, let's see my parents approach to being american i don't know i mean i think that You know, Americans love to talk about being American, right? Americans mm. love to talk about the American dream, all this and and I mean all Americans, right? Like Americans of any race or religion who have been here for however many number of years, you know, somehow there's this collective cultural navel gazing <laughs> fascination <laughs> with the idea of what it is to be American. But do you think that sometimes people do that especially immigrants uh, and I can only speak mm -hmm. for immigrants and my experiences they feel like they once they they talk about the American dream somehow mm -hmm. that's the pivotal moment when they have fully immersed themselves in american culture and because if you ask me i don't think about the american dream mm -hmm. but i feel like everybody else around me makes a conscious effort to make me realize that i should think about it i don't know if that makes sense yeah no it does make sense i mean i for example right now in certain fashion circles like prairie dresses are really popular and there's mm -hmm. a lot of discussion of over like who do prairie dresses look good on do we want to wear them do we not <laughs> in some ways i feel like the american like talking about the american dream is part of this very long trend of the formation of america right like america right. is still really in its early years it's in the sort of like second or third phase of its formative years so we're still talking about all of these things that are kind of how do we create a collective consciousness right mm -hmm. and sometimes i think they're very interesting and then sometimes i think that things like the american dream it's more of just this like like an easy catchphrase like like an easy sort of thing to like tug on the heartstrings or something like that. That's how I see it. But going back to your parents uh, experiences versus yours because we were discussing that before I interrupted you. <laughs> Sorry for that. Okay. Yeah, sure. so let's talk about that. Like and I think you were you were talking about your parents experiences in the context of American dream. So my parents immigrated to America from Taiwan. They came here to go mm -hmm. to grad school. I don't think that they thought ah uh, we will come to america and the american dream will be there waiting for us exactly. I, that, 
that's in the lexicon of the United States. That's not the way that <laughs> I think that there are a lot of people here from other countries who quickly see that Americans love to hear that, you know? Mm. And so when they're interviewed or whatever, then they're like, ah, yes, I came from Albania and I, and I discovered the American dream, like, <laughs> you know? And I'm sure that there, of course, there are people in other countries where perhaps they do talk about the American dream. I can't say for sure that that doesn't exist anywhere, right? But I think for them at the time, it was more of a practical choice. There weren't a lot of jobs in Taiwan at the time. And grad school was basically free in America back then. And so they came. You know, I think my parents are a kind of a weird example in the sense that they grew up in Taiwan, but their families are from mainland China. And so I think they sort of felt like immigrants in Taiwan, in a sense, mm. also, you know. But do they feel part of the U.S. now? Like, is yeah. there a sense of belonging here now? Yeah. I think it's two things. I think people are endlessly adaptable. And I also think that for whatever reason, we have this sort of like bittersweet nostalgia about the concept of home, mm. you know? So even if you are a person who lives in a place where your ancestors have lived forever, you're still going to feel that kind of like, oh, my home is slipping away from me. It's changing in these little bits, you know, in these ways. I don't know. I think that it's something about like the way humans are wired in general that makes us, I feel that way about home, you know? Are you more vulnerable or more secure when it comes to sense of belonging in the U.S.? I do generally think that I'm someone who just feels pretty at home anywhere. Hmm. Everywhere I've been in the U.S., I felt sort of like, sure. I mean, I love Los Angeles. I really think it's just the best city. Hmm. And it is totally where I see myself living. But, you know, I've, yeah, other countries that I've traveled to, I wouldn't say that I feel not at home there. But also, I think that someone could make the argument that my concept of home is warped because I'm like two generations removed from my actual homeland, you know? Mm -hmm. um, so moving on to your essay, because that's how your essay in the Good Immigrant book, um, yeah. that's how I was introduced to your writing. Yeah. Uh, your essay, How to Center Your Story, you talk about how important it is to live one's life unapologetically and you call it an act of defiance. First of all, I mm -hmm. would like give a bit of background about what you were talking about in the essay. And this is, again, in the aftermath of 2016 elections and mm -hmm. how you were scared and you felt othered, but then you were like, you know, this is not something that you should be feeling. So mm. can you talk a little bit about that? You know, I think it was, it was a sense that I had never felt kind of othered in America. I mean, it's not quite true, right? Like, of course, I've been aware of the fact that I am in some people's eyes othered, but I think just as a pure like personality trait, <laughs> I mm. wouldn't say that that ever made me feel like I was actually less than them or that I was vulnerable in some way. That's just not the way that I personally am wired to approach the world, you know? Mm. But after the 2016 election, I was on book tour and I was in Austin and I was driving to Dallas and you pass Waco on the way from Austin mm -hmm. to Dallas. And anyone who grew up 
in America who's probably, I guess, over 20 years old uh, is probably (laughs) aware of Waco and the big standoff there and all of that. So that town definitely has this place in the American imagination as just a, you know, scary (laughs) place with militias and guns and everything. And so I was driving and I just, I'd woken up that morning really feeling like, oh my God, maybe this country has just changed. Like maybe this is a different world now. And I had to pull off in Waco to fill up to get gas. I just remember being, you know, really wary of everybody at that gas station. And it truly was just all these giant trucks (laughs) were there. And um, I couldn't get my credit card to work. I had to go into the actual building. And as I walked up, I really felt scared in a way that I just hadn't really experienced before. Hmm. You know, it was daytime. It was the streets were busy. It was like, it's not a situation where I would normally feel scared, but I really did. And I opened the door and the cashier was probably the Middle Eastern. I I don't know exactly where he was from, but definitely another brown person. (laughs) He and I looked at each other with just this like, total relief on both of our faces. I mean, it was just so clear that that was what had happened. We looked at each other and we were like, oh my God, it's you. Okay, it's you. <laughs> like, I don't have to be scared of you. And But it was, but yeah, and then as I was driving away, I really felt so mad. And I just felt like that's ridiculous. I'm not going to allow this time to change the way I feel about my place in this country. And so the essay really grew from that. When we look at 2016 elections, people have changed and they've like most of us have in some way, you know, catapulted into action. And we are doing things, Mm -hmm. whether it's altruism or whether it's activism in some other form or like writing essays like you're doing and Mm -hmm. creating a podcast or Mm -hmm. whatever it Mm -hmm. is. But do you think it's something that what, what we don't, recognize or we don't want to admit is that what happened in oh, yeah. 2016 elections is an mm-hmm. outcome of what has been part of American yeah. society for a long time. Absolutely. Yeah. And so how do we reconcile with that truth? Oh, yeah, I think that's absolutely true. You know, I wasn't surprised. Like I was scared and shocked in a way when uh, when I woke up that morning. But mm-hmm. I totally thought there was a chance that Trump would win. You know, I'm not blind to the racism that is mm. that underlies like a lot of American institutions, a lot of things in this country. In some way, I do think that that is the good thing that has come out of Absolutely, that election, yeah. you know, is the fact that it isn't something that can be hidden anymore, that it's something that that we're forced to discuss, that we're forced to face, that we're forced to find solutions for. All we can do is be as unafraid as possible in facing that. And I don't know if you've seen that with immigrant communities that you interact with at all. But mm-hmm. what I, I realized is that as immigrants, and I've said it time and again, we mm-hmm. when we come to the U.S., we just decide that we act like guests. We don't assert ourselves politically. We don't assert ourselves socially. We come here for college and then we raise our kids. We give them good education. We pay taxes. 
But then we don't want to raise our voices. We don't want to talk about injustices that happen. I don't think that's true. I just don't think that's true. I think that, yes, that exists, right? Like, I think there are a lot of people in immigrant communities who who act that way, who think, like, don't rock the boat. Let me just get through college, make some money, do what I came to do. But I think that, you know, a lot of the -the on-the-ground activism is definitely led by kids who... um, yeah, sure. I think a lot of them probably are first generation, but yeah. definitely many of them are from immigrant. I, I think that's where the difference is. I mm-hmm. think first generation, second generation, because for them, mm-hmm. sense mm-hmm. of belonging is much stronger. And mm-hmm. I think for them, this this notion of this is their country and there is no other country that they can go mm-hmm. to or fall back on. Mm-hmm. And I think when I talk about immigrants, I am specifically talking about immigrants, not first, second gen. And that's why I partly blame mm-hmm. our communities for this other notion, because if, if we act like others, then we will right. treat it like others. I have friends whose kids are first gen and they are mm-hmm. very active politically. And some of them are like teenagers and they, they've been mm-hmm. politically active in like against mm-hmm. gun violence and against other injustices. But when you look at immigrants, mm-hmm. I still think that they're scared to participate as much. Well, I think the, the question also is, when did they immigrate, right? Like, I think mm-hmm. someone who came here when they were five is going to have a very different experience than someone who came when they were 25. Yeah, yeah. And a very different feeling about being in this country, about whether or not they feel a desire to commit to changing things in this country. Yeah, I mean, I could totally see a situation where if I... Like if I fell in love with someone and moved to France, but it was now, you know what I mean? Mm. Would I feel a desire to kind of take part in any of the protests there? Maybe not. Like maybe I would feel like, well, this isn't my country. (laughs) You know, (laughs) how involved do I want to get? I don't know. But yeah, I don't, I don't know. Most of my friends who are immigrants are people who came when they were quite young. So I would say that their experiences really are very similar to mine. You talk about uh, your book, Bangs Versus the World, and this Mm -hmm. lady comes up to you and she says, Mm -hmm. oh, this is set in Bel Air and it should not Uh, have been set in Bel Air. It should have been set somewhere else Uh because that's where, where the Chinese reside. And sometimes I feel that people, in order to preserve their worldview, they tend to question narratives Mm -hmm. that transgress from what Mm -hmm. they consider to be the norm, right? Absolutely. And and Mm -hmm. I I remember reading that it really bothered you. Um, Can you talk a bit about that experience? I guess my term would be more that I was just very incredulous, you know, (laughs) that someone would be so unimaginative Hmm. that they would think that the way they see the world is the only way that the world could possibly exist. So what happened was I was at a literary event. It was a fundraiser for a library. And so we were seated at these tables for this luncheon. (laughs) And this woman uh, sat down next to me and she was like, I don't understand why your book really should have been set in San Marino. And she said it with this real kind of like friendliness. And um, I truly did not understand what she was saying at first. (laughs) And so San Marino is this community 
in the Los Angeles area where a lot of wealthy Chinese people live, mm. you know? And then finally I was like, oh, you mean because there's a lot of rich Chinese people in San Marino? And she's like, yes, that's where they all are. They're not in Bel Air. Mm. They're in San Marino. And there couldn't be one rich Chinese family. Yeah, in exactly. I mean, I would understand if I had perhaps written Bel Air as this community that was just like, full of hundreds of rich Chinese people. Well, sure, that's not quite true. Like, I'd understand the argument there. But I just wrote this one family, and they can live anywhere I want them. Jade, when we are seeing a transformative shift in our politics, in our overall value system, and we've talked about this in some ways, we have regressed, Mm. and as you pointed out, but in other ways, it's a blessing because we see more activism. We see people Mm. confronting issues that were not confronted before. But how do we, as individuals and as a society and community, counterbalance the undermining of a diverse America? Because I feel that's something that's under attack, and I don't want to sound dramatic, but um, Mm -hmm. that's how I feel. Well, I think there's a lot of different levels to this, right? I think there's kind of what you do in the day to day in your kind of interpersonal relationships. And then for me, with that, it is you know, no longer being willing to kind of make other people feel comfortable when they say something or do something that does betray essentially like an underlying racist way of looking at the world. Give me an example. How, how would you do that? Okay, here's an example that if this friend listens, she should just know that I do not think she's at all a terrible person, but it is a good <laughs> example. I was hanging out with some friends and One of them, I can't remember whether she mentioned the title of my book or whether she mentioned my last name. You know, my last name is Chang. The title of the book is The Wangs Versus the World. It's very easy to confuse the two. I don't think it's a big deal at all, honestly. (laughs) It would be like if someone who was white wrote a book where, you know, the book title was Tellerson and and their last name was Williamson. Like it's not, it's just not a big deal, right? Like it makes sense. It's two similar words. And so she flipped the two and then she was like, oh my God, I'm so sorry. That was so racist of me. I'm really sorry. And, you know, I think in times past, I would have been like, oh, it's fine. It wasn't racist. You're totally fine. But instead, what I said was actually, no, that wasn't racist of you. In fact, what is racist is the fact that you think that it's racist, you know, Mm. that a Chinese last name would be somehow so different from any other more European last name that it would be somehow more of an insult. It's like that joke that gets told a lot where you see this in a lot of kind of like woke American sitcoms now where Mm. someone is like, I'm Mexican. And then the other person's like, don't, don't say that. That's racist. You know, and they're like, no, no, I'm actually from Mexico. You're right. Isn't it more bothersome when people patronize you? Yeah. I just don't want anybody to patronize me. Yeah, sure. And so I just feel like, you know, that like sort of being willing to make someone who you love uncomfortable for a moment is something that I would have been less willing to do in the past. And now am totally open to doing all the time, (laughs) you know, because I'm not saying like you suck and you're a terrible person. I'm saying, Hey, look at what you're doing and think about it for a moment and reconsider it. So I think on a personal level, that is the difference. And then I think on, you know, on a larger level, a lot of it is just being willing to put in the time in terms of like, 
donating to political candidates in mm. not in the presidential race, you know, who are like running for these smaller offices, being willing to actually join a protest, things like that, things that don't have necessarily like an immediate large result, but that are the things that actually, you know, end up moving the needle. What is the one most shocking thing people have said to you about your book or about your essay? I mean, honestly, they don't even shock me anymore. (laughs) What I kind of love doing is having these discussions, you know, with my friends who have books out, who are white, who don't get these comments at all. But, you know, I mean, they get other crazy, like everyone is going to get some kind of crazy comment about their book. I mean, most shocking, I don't know, you know, the the How to Center Your Own Story essay mm-hmm. definitely has a few of those in there. I gave a talk at a place that I love, so I will allow it to remain anonymous. <laughs> and it was for sort of wealthy patrons of this place. Mm-hmm. You know, it was really kind of fancy. It was at this private club. There was like beautiful luncheon served. At the end of my talk, I was kind of led around to like meet all these donors. And one of them was this woman who had been looking at me with such like love in her eyes. She just, <laughs> she, she kind of looked like Betty White a little bit, picture that, you know, like very pretty and innocent looking, yeah. but deceptively so perhaps just like <laughs> Betty White. And, you know, when I was introduced to her, she was like, Oh, honey, you know, that was, that was amazing. I loved your talk so much. You were so adorable and charming. And, you know, it was like, if I closed my eyes, I could just think that you were a normal person. Oh, wow. Oh, (laughs) wow. Yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah. That was pretty good. Yeah. Oh, my. Oh, wow. Yeah. I'm seriously speechless right now. And it's a, (laughs) my God, I just want to know, what did you say to her? Like, you must have said something like, you know, in that situation, I knew how much money all these people had given. (laughs) And it wasn't that I was like, oh, you can buy your way out of anything. But also I was like, well, I don't want to mess things up for this institution. I think like if it had been, On stage, for example, I would have said something. Like, I wouldn't have Mm. kind of let that go. Mm. But I said something uh, like, none of us are normal, not even you, or, you know, something like that Mm. in a a sort of jokey, pointed way, you know? You know, it's so interesting because I was talking to one of my friends Mm -hmm. the other day, and we were talking about how uh, even pro-diversity organizations or what have you, Mm -hmm. they have issues with diversity. Sure. And she brought up something very important. And I I had not Mm -hmm. really thought about it as much. And she said, like, even if you listen to NPR, which I listen to very diligently, and Mm -hmm. you will hear like Lakshmi Singh, she doesn't have an accent. So Mm -hmm. the point being that a person Mm -hmm. like me who has an accent, you won't hear Mm -hmm. me or a person like me on radio. You're talking about this, this whole incident. I'm assuming mm-hmm. she meant that you don't have an accent. Oh, you know, that's so interesting. I I actually never even thought about the accent part of it. I just assumed the talk was about, it was, it was like a kind of jokey but serious 
like a fun yet moving thing about like how to write a novel. So I just assumed that she meant more like you could have been white with my eyes closed, but you're right. She probably did mean also because I didn't have an accent. Yeah, because in her mm-hmm. mind, you sound mm-hmm. white. And and that's mm-hmm. it. Like what, what she was trying to, and, and that's how she was complimenting you. And, right, right, and, and right. that's what happens. Like for me, like my accent just mm-hmm. gives away. It's like, okay, she, 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 mm-hmm. was, she wasn't born or raised here. And, right. and, and again, what we see, because we don't normalize different accents, we don't, we mm-hmm. don't bring people with different accents. So for mm-hmm. mainstream American population, somebody who sounds like maybe you would be more normal than somebody sounding like me. It's true. Yeah, it's true. You know, and that, honestly, that was one of the reasons that I wanted to make sure that even though I don't love writing in an accent, mm. that's why I wanted to give the father in the Wangs like a pretty distinctive accent and slightly improper use of grammar, etc. Because I just really think that like an accent is a mark of accomplishment. It means right. that you speak more than one language. Than one language. <laughs> English is not our native language. So the way we speak right. English, I mean, it is an accomplishment mm-hmm. for us. And I'm sure if I were yeah. to ask somebody to speak Urdu fluently, they wouldn't. And and because that's not their native right. language. So you're absolutely right. Mm-hmm. And it's important to introduce that because every time we talk about accents, I think, in, especially in mainstream media, we, we talk about it in a disparaging way, making fun of somebody's accent. Right. Right. And that's 100% why I wanted to be like, okay, you think this accent sounds ridiculous, but this is someone extremely accomplished and extremely capable who just happens to not care exactly what he sounds like exactly you know so Jade, if you would yeah. describe because i ask all my guests this question and and i get such mm-hmm. interesting answers and i'm hoping that one day i'll just compile all those answers and you know make it into something yeah. i don't know what but if you were to describe uh-huh. america in one word what would that be oh boy <laughs> <laughs> I'll be honest, the first word that came to mind was just big. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, yeah, that's true. Because it is. I mean, I think, like, obviously it is geographically large. And in a way that I have come to appreciate more and more, I think there was a while right out of college where all I wanted to do was travel in other parts of the world, which I was lucky to get to do a lot of. And then in the past five years or so, I have traveled around America a lot more and, you know, there's just so many amazing things to see. And then also I do feel like America's ambitions are big. And I don't mean in a manifest destiny sense, though I guess that is Hmm. kind of what underlines it. That there is, you know, a school of like, think big. That Not that it doesn't exist at all in other countries, but that America likes to think is very American. Do you think sometimes it's to America's own detriment, just this this notion of think big? Maybe. <laughs> I'm not sure. Yes and no. I mean, I think that, I just think it's hard to talk about anything, even though I often want to talk about sort of, you know, the American consciousness, like what we think in mm. this nation, et cetera. I also think that because we are so big and there are so many different worlds here, there are an equal number of people who are like, think small, be careful, don't get get a good job, you know, all of that stuff. Like, 
that sort of exists equally. Yeah. Before we end our interview, I would mm-hmm. like to move on to our rapid fire round. So okay. I'll ask you some fun questions. Okay. And yeah, and, and you can feel free to answer just like in a word or maybe a sentence. They, they don't have to be long answers. Sure. If you could eat one food for the rest of your life, what would it be? Savory oatmeal. If you could only take three things to a deserted island, what would they be? Oh, I'm very practical. So I feel like my, <laughs> my three things would be like a flint, you know, like something that lets you light fire, mm-hmm. like a backpack full of emergency supplies. Yeah, that could be one thing. Yeah. Uh-huh. Um, sneakers. For running? Yeah, and just, it would be terrible to be barefoot all the time. Yeah, yeah. It'd be too hot. (laughs) Name three things on your bucket list. I would love to learn how to scuba dive. Hmm. I'd love to see the Northern Lights. I'd also love to go to Antarctica. Yeah, that's interesting. So it's all travel related, most of it. Yeah, I guess they're all like experience related. Yeah. (laughs) And your biggest failure so far? You know, that is an interesting question. I feel like maybe I don't think about life in those terms. Hmm. I'm not trying to hide from telling you about any failures Hmm. or mistakes that I've made. I can't really think of. I think it's it's a great approach to life. Why define anything as failure, right? Everything teaches us something. Your biggest achievement so far? I am not very good at these sort of best of questions. I don't, I also don't think that I, that I think of things in terms of like greatest achievement either. I will say I was recently um, at this sort of a commune, basically. It's kind of an art project, kind of a commune. But in order to heat the cabins that we were staying in, you to chop your own firewood. And I've tried to chop firewood before, but I've never been able to, but I had no choice this time. And I actually wielded a giant ax and chopped up a bunch of firewood. And I really is maybe the most accomplished I've ever felt. See, that is an achievement. It, it, yeah. it absolutely is. I would yeah. be happy doing that too. I mean, I would feel so proud of myself if I were able to. What, what's the best mm-hmm. piece of advice you ever got? It was a few years ago, I was going through a breakup and I was talking to a friend of mine on the phone and I was upset at something. I honestly can't remember what I was upset about. (laughs) You know, it wasn't something enormous and I knew that, but um, my friend said, oh, you know, these things are all about your ego. Like you're upset because your ego is wounded. And I know that that really is kind of a you know, like a psych 101 mm-hmm. thing. Mm-hmm. But I think because she said it to me at that moment, I it just really hit me. And I actually, have, I think I found it very helpful going forward, not just in romantic relationships, but I think it's kind of why I don't get particularly upset when people say crazy shit to me, <laughs> you know? I just feel like it has no effect on the core of my being at all. It has no effect on my true self on who I am in the world. The only thing that could be upset by that is, is my ego. Yeah. So your, your idea of vacation, I think we already have an answer to that, but we'll ask. Oh, uh, my idea of vacation. Yeah, definitely. You know, doing things outdoors, being somewhere really beautiful, you know, 
your favorite emoji <laughs> i use the sparkle heart emoji oh, a lot my sister and uses that a lot <laughs> who does my sister really? yeah she, she does that a lot yeah I just think it's so cute. I also, even though I have to admit, I don't really like cats in real life because I'm very allergic to them. I do really like the emoji that's the cat with a little tear. I just think it's really cute. (laughs) (laughs) Are you a tea person or a coffee person? Tea. I'm anti-caffeine. Oh, but, but tea has some caffeine, right? Oh yeah, but I only drink herbal tea. Oh, yeah. See, I'm, I'm from Pakistan, so I have to have either black tea, like I can have like six cups a day or more, oh my God. Or, uh-huh. or I have coffee, so I am on caffeine. Yeah. Home is? Home is everywhere. Yeah. Yeah. I would like to think that. Thank you so much, Jade. This was wonderful. I had so much fun. Guys, please check out uh, Jade's book, Wangs Versus the World. You can also check her essay in The Good Immigrant USA. It's an amazing essay. That's how I found her. And you should all support both her books. Also, thank you so much for supporting my podcast, for subscribing to it. We have a Patreon account if you want to check that out. Our website is www.adianchroniclespod.com. Please stay tuned for our next episode when we will bring you another immigrant story. And in the meantime, stay connected. 